There are a lot of opinions out there. God isn't real. You are. How do you know that the Bible is accurate? And how do you know that the New Testament is reliable? So what, what does the Bible say about God? What voice are we going to listen to? We need to ask, what does God's Word say? TikTok Theology, taking new ground in theology. All right, you good, church? TikTok Theology, I got to get straight into this. It's a... Uh, it's going to be a great series. You're going to love it. But I want to make sure we're connected to all of our campuses. So give me thumbs up. Are we good? Are we connecting right now? I'm looking. I want to make sure I don't start this message without being connected. It says here that we're connected to Seaboard, Norfolk, Richmond, and Wilson. Can we welcome all of our campuses? I'm still looking for a thumbs up. Praise the Lord. I'm still, okay, we got a thumbs up. So welcome to all of our campus. I want to make sure that we actually uh, start this because it's important. I want to start by saying that um, probably our, our campus pastors have done a lot of research with this because we were originally going to teach this series um, about two or three months ago, and we did a lot of preparation for that. And then we decided we'd move it back and move things around a little. So I want to give you my, my sources of material of my research. Number one, some of you have seen a documentary called The Social Dilemma. It's a very good documentary. It's on Netflix, I think, and you should watch that. It is very good. Um, it's a little, got a couple of moments there. You've got to say that's a little dramatized, a little sensational in its presentation, but its content is good. Uh, Tim Keller who recently just went to be with the Lord, is an absolute amazing master. And uh, I'm just talking through some of the things we're going to talk about today. Another guy called Josh Howerton, and I, I like him. I think he's got some very strong views. And then on top of that, a guy called Calvin Robertson, who actually was refused to be ordained by, what was the denomination, Mark, do you remember? The Anglicans in England, because of his stance on, on, on marriage and family, and he actually was not ordained by the Anglican church because the, he, you know, he, he actually has a biblical stance and actually spoke a great message that I heard him speak, pushing back on the Anglican leaders and the denomination. So, um, and then on top of that, our campus pastors, Mark Hopkins as well. So they're my sources, and I'm going to get straight into this. Some of you aren't going to like all of my message. But remember, it's not me that I'm actually, I'm wanting to just deliver the Word of God. Is that okay? Um, there will be questions that will happen out in the conversations in the lobby, and I welcome them. Praise the Lord. So let me just start by saying, we live in a world that is changing so fast that we can get left behind. Wouldn't you agree? Um, in business, powerhouse companies like that didn't embrace change aren't here anymore. I think about Blockbusters. How many remember Blockbusters? Young people, you won't remember this, but there was a company called Blockbusters where you used to go to a store and rent a video and then you always had to return it rewound. Otherwise, how much was the fine? They fined you if you didn't rewind it. Amazing. And of course, uh, Blockbusters had the opportunity to buy out Netflix, which was a new emerging technology, and Blockbusters passed on that, and of course, the rest is history. Kodak, um, they, they developed the world's, first, the world's first digital camera. Management was so focused on the success 
of photography and film that they missed the digital revolution. They failed to keep innovating and filed for bankruptcy in 2012. Sears, some of you remember Sears, uh, was one that never adapted. Walmart, Amazon took over the world. Blackberry and Nokia. These are some companies that didn't just keep changing. And of course, Blackberry isn't what it used to be, and Nokia is gone. And I know what it's like in technology to struggle with technology. I know sometimes I'm trying to buy something online and I finally just give up and I give it to my daughter or I give it to somebody else and I get frustrated sometimes with trying to stay in touch with, I mean, how many, how many here during COVID, the thing I didn't like, now young people, you're going to totally not relate to this, okay? So you got permission for 60 seconds to ignore me. But how many get frustrated, you go to a restaurant and you have to scan that stupid QR code, and then you order all your food and put all your credit card. I hated that. I despised that. I did not want to go and work that hard. Anybody feel me here? Oh, God, I hated that. And I thought, please, God, don't let this be a new norm. All right. So, you know, in music style, by the way, just think about church life. You know, sometimes you go to some churches, it's like visiting the 80s. It's like, come on, can we, can we keep making, you know, pastors that don't make the changes in church life and church culture. Uh, even this, the length of a service in, in church life. I mean, I remember where we only measured a service by how good it was, whether it went for three hours. Not whether God turned up, but whether it went for three hours. I'm so glad the length of a service has shortened just some. The length of a sermon, music style, sound and production, Amen? Media. Everything's on camera now. Everything's being filmed. Everything gets posted now. Amen? Technology itself is changing so fast, and I want to start by saying we must embrace that change. Because if we don't, we will get left behind. Even preachers who don't adapt to today's realities will be sidelined. I have a friend who preached only thinking about preaching to his church crowd and gave no thought to today's broadcast and social media and sound bites. And let me tell you, he didn't give thought to the consequences of what he was saying to his local church on a global footprint. And he was sidelined and no longer passes the church, a big church that he built. And he's no longer the pastor of it because he didn't give consideration to context in the, in the church which he pastored. Jesus put it this way, children of, the children of darkness are wiser than the children of light. Amen. So leadership styles have changed. I talk to my friends in the military and they'll tell me the standard of recruiting today is so diminished to what it used to be. And because things are changing. Now, I'll let the military sort whether that's for good or for bad. I have my own opinions, but I'm just saying movies have changed, haven't they? Commercials have changed. Advertising has changed. Marketing has changed. Fashion has changed. Some people wouldn't know, but fashion has changed. <laughs> maybe, maybe the biggest change, I think, is where we get our information. I forgot I was supposed to put this microphone down. Are we good? Are you ready? Praise the Lord. Is where we get our information. I'm going to talk about that later. Uh, I preferred magazines over newspapers growing up. Because at least with magazines, 
the reporter had to go and report, interview, you know, then consider what was interviewed and then write it out and then had submitted to an editor. The editor then had to read it and then it went to the publisher and then it got printed. So there was more time to check out the sources, but newspapers were all about headlines, trying to get the biggest headline. So I kind of felt like there was more accuracy, more intentionality. Um, there may have been bias. There may have been all the normal things to go on, but at least it was a little bit more thought out. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And now we live in a world where we have 24-hour news channels. Well, could you imagine trying to feed that monster? Having to come up with 24-hour news? Amen? But listen what the Bible says. Malachi 3. For I am the Lord, and I change not. Therefore, your sons, Jacob, are not consumed. So God says, I'm the Lord, and I do not change. So there's some things about God that won't change. By the way, this is in the context of tithing. If you're wondering what he's talking about here, some people like to change tithing. They like to try and make it different. But God says, no, I haven't changed. Bring the tithe into the storehouse. But now the God who doesn't change says in Isaiah, behold, I do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know of it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So God says he's doing a new thing. And yet he also says he changes not. Jesus said, don't pour new wine into old wineskins or they'll burst. So how do we navigate this complex, ever-changing world? And, and, and this is what Jesus, sometimes we can get confused. And I love what Jesus prayed for you and I. This is the prayer he prayed, John 17. Listen to what the prayer he prayed. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Listen, Jesus is praying for you, and he's not praying that God would take us out of the world. So when we create subcultures that remove us from the world that God's put us in, we're actually working against the very will and the plan and the prayer of Christ. I'm all for Christian schools. I've never been more for them. But if your reason for doing it is to isolate them and remove them from the world, that's not a good reason. Amen? I'm all for Christian universities. We were talking about that this morning before the service. I'm all for them. I'm all for Christian businesses. I'm all for Christian music. But let me tell you something. You've got to remember, Jesus is praying that he, God doesn't take us out of the world, but he keeps us from the evil that is in the world. Amen? So we want to run away. We want to escape. And over these four weeks, I want to get our wisdom, our knowledge from God and not from TikTok. Listen, the Bible says, Isaiah 55. He goes, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But listen to what Jesus speaks about Satan, because this is the world. He prays that God doesn't take us out of the world, but he protects us from the evil, the evil one. So listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said that Satan is the prince of this cosmos. That word cosmos means world. And even, in, even Jesus called him in John... Uh, he called him the prince of this world, the one that actually the apostle John mentions that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. 
John 12. Now the time for judgment of this world or this cosmos, now the prince of this world will be driven out. John 12, 31. The time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. Listen to what Jesus is saying. The devil is the prince of this world. He's the ruler of this world. Or John 16, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. 1 John 5, listen what the Bible says. For we know that we are from God. The whole world, listen to this, lies under the power of the evil one. Now, if I were the devil, I would be using any and every means to control the rhetoric, the voice, and the culture. Wouldn't you agree? And so, with that in mind, I just want to make it very clear. There are some TikTok lies out there, and we're going to talk a little bit more at the end of this message about the danger of algorithms, and, and I'm all for technology. You heard me start by saying, we got to change. Amen? But we've got to figure out where we're getting our information from. And I want to tell you, the prince of this world is at work right now in trying to change the way in which people view the Bible. So here's the first lie that's from TikTok. You can't trust the Bible. Check this out. Nobody gets to go to heaven because they're good. We get to go to heaven because God's good. Only by God's grace. Let me point out something here. That question and the one before, you're both making a false assumption. You're both assuming that the words of the Bible are reliable and dependable. They are not. You have built your house on the sand. Those words are not a source of truth. If you have to base truth on a book that somebody wrote, then you don't even have a concept of how to find truth. Truth is not handed to us. We use reason. We use logic. We use investigation. We use... So don't quote the Bible to me and think that it makes any difference. If the Bible says something is true, that, does, that, that probably means that it's false. <laughs> now, how funny is it that he uses a Bible reference, you're building a house on sand, to disprove what was just said? I just think it's hilarious. He ends up quoting the Bible. It's just, now, in 1778, which is the year that Voltaire died, uh, the French philosopher Voltaire once boasted, a hundred years after my death, he said, the Bible will be a museum piece. A hundred years after his death, the French Bible Society set up its headquarters in Voltaire's old home in Paris. Somebody ought to give God some praise. For us as believers... We live on what I call the high road, and we enter heaven by what I call the narrow gate. Listen to what Jesus said. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, everybody say many, many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So as Christians, I want to make sure, and I'm talking to every campus right now, I'm talking to all of our online viewers, we need to submit our minds and our lives to God and to his word. Would you agree? Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. You see, here's the thought, a mind that is hot, a mind that isn't set on him is hostile to God. Romans 8 verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, listen to what it says, it cannot. To Timothy, I want to start with this. He said the TikTok theology lie is you can't trust the Bible. But I want to tell you what the Bible says about the Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking. And I tell you, the Bible's rebuking today some things going on in the world, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let me just start by saying this. The Bible is composed of 66 books. They're divided into two divisions, an Old Testament and a New Testament. Amen? Come on, somebody say amen. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. I'm going to put a chart up here on the screen, and I know we've got this in all the campuses where we're going to split the screen so you can see it, all of our online viewers. This is, do we have the chart? Oh, there it is over here. Okay, this is the chart, what, what, what we would call the, the canonical order of the Old Testament. We couldn't get the entire Old Testament, all the books on one screen, so we're going to show you the rest of it in just a moment. But I want to let you know today that all Scripture is God-breathed and God-inspired. That's where the word canon comes from. What you hold in your hand today, where's my Bible? There it is. What you hold in your hand today is what we call the canonical order. So what happened was God inspired the writing of his word. Not only did he inspire the writing of it, but he also saw to it, if he can inspire the writing of it, he can also protect it. He can also preserve it. If God gave it to a person to write and actually, and, and he would see to it that it was written down, then not only did he do that, but then he gave the ability for that word to be preserved, protected. And then not only that, but how do we know what are the writings that are inspired by God versus other writings that just happen to be in the day? Well, God gave people a collective sense, listen to this, to identify what was inspired by God. He gave people the ability to go, yep, we see that is inspired writing. That is going to be part of what we now know today as being our Bible. But not only did he do that, but he also gave them the ability to formulate it and take it from the chronological. Did you know the oldest book in the Bible, according to most people, is the book of Job? And, and, and in terms of when it was written, obviously Genesis is the first account of everything, but as in terms of when it was written, Job was the first writing that was written, they say. And Job, by the way, has dinosaurs. If you're wondering about dinosaurs, read the book of Job. It actually has them in there. And there's a great story. So I want to tell you that not only did God inspire the writing it, not only did he preserve it, not only did he protect it, but he gave people a collective sense to identify what is inspired writings. Amen. To say, yep, this is God. But then he puts it, he gave people the ability to formulate it and put it into what we know today as our Bible. He did that both in the Old and he did it both in the New Testament. So let me just break it down for you real quick, if that's okay. See, there's a difference between the chronological and the canonization of Scripture. Canon, as I mentioned, is the identification of the books. God not only inspired the writing of these books, he protected them from error, error, he preserved them, he inspired them to be identified and collected and then put together in the formation of his writings. Why? How could God do that? Because he's alpha and he's omega. He is the beginning and he is the end. Amen? What you hold in your hand today is reliable, authoritative, and authentic. Come on, somebody say amen. 
So look at these first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. It's what we call the law. And the Old Testament, it's called the Pentateuch. It refers to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, which is the book of beginnings. Well, it would make sense, even though Job was perhaps written before this, in terms of when it was written, but Genesis would be the start, because in the beginning, God. How many are glad that in the beginning, it was God? Amen. I'm so glad it wasn't Lady Gaga. I'm so glad it wasn't I just, in the beginning, God. God created, so that book would make sense. That if you're going to formulate inspired writings, that would be the first book of the Bible. Somebody say amen. Then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These books are said to be written by Moses and referred to as the law because it contains the Ten Commandments and other laws that God gave to his people. Amen. Then we have what's called, what we would call history books. Have a look up there. These are history books. There's 12 of them. And in the history books, it goes from Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And the whole purpose of these books is to show how God's obedience, how obedience rather to God's law means good things for his people. And disobedience means punishment and loss of God's favor. The book of Judges is a perfect example as it shows the repeated cycle of rebellion and judgment and God's grace. Then the next category we have, these were formulated. They were writings that were identified as inspired, but how do we put them into what we have today? God watched over not only the writing of it, but the preservation of it, the collection of it, the identification of it, and the formulation of it. And now we have what's called the poet, the poetry books. These, these poetic and wisdom writings include Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Job is a great example of wisdom, isn't it? It's of the wisdom category because it shows the story of a man, Job's faith. Listen to this. God was testing him by a series of events that turned his life upside down. Psalms, especially the well-loved and well-known 23, are well-known for the poetic quality. And similarly, the book of Proverbs is a well-known book of wisdom that it imparts, and he was tested by a series event that turns his life around. Can I tell you, that's what God gave. God inspired the writing of his words. But come now to what we call the prophetic books. And look, and by the way, I'm, I'm told that in Jewish culture, you have to be a teenage boy, a certain age, before you're even allowed to read Song of Songs because that book is erotic. You want to, I'm telling you, you want to read that book and understand how it's written. But prophecy, the prophets include Isaiah, Jeremiah, and there's too many to mention right there. It goes down to Malachi. The only difference between major prophets, have a look up on the screen, which are the first five listed above, and the minor prophets is the amount of text in them. That's the only difference. The main purpose of the prophets is to impart messages from God to his people. And these, this arrangement of books of the Old Testament, which is probably made about the middle of the third century, refers to the subject matter of various sections rather than just a chronological order in which they're written. I'm saying all that to say, there's the Old Testament. And I want to tell you, God watches over his word. And he is Alpha and he is Omega. And he didn't just inspire the writing of it, but he protected it supernaturally as supernatural is his word. Come on, somebody say amen. 
Just for a moment, have a look at the New Testament. Have a look up here at the New Testament. The New Testament is divided into three divisions. Some people like to say it's five. Different people have different variations, but I like this one. This one came out of a study that I did in Jensen's survey of the New Testament. And what you hold today in those first five books of the Bible, there is debate whether Acts should be a history book. I personally feel like it's good where it is in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So let's look at this for a moment. Let's look at the history books. Let's look at the epistles. And I want you to notice that the first first epistles were all written by the Apostle Paul. And in the category of churches, Paul wrote to churches, Romans, all the way down to 2 Thessalonians. They're all letters written by Paul to churches. Then look, it says, Pauline epistles from 1 Timothy to Philemon. They were all written by the Apostle Paul to individuals. They are what we call the epistles. And then go down to the non-Pauline epistles. That's from Hebrews down to Job. These are what we would categorize as epistles. When, why would these books, when they were identified, I'm trying to show you that not only did God inspire the writing of it, but God actually inspired the collection of it, the identification of it, and even the formulation of it, as opposed to the chronological order in which they were written, which different books were written at different times. But God supernaturally, because he's Alpha and Omega, is protecting and preserving, and he gave the ability for the church in that day to gather and say, we will formulate what we see as the inspired writing of God. Why would Matthew be first? Because Matthew is the book that brings everything back to its genealogy. Read Matthew chapter one. It's a natural transition from the 400 silent years where God said nothing as Jesus came into the earth and God birthed his son. It's a great account all the way back from the beginning right up to Jesus. Why is John last? John's more of an interpretation and a reflection book. And then the book of Acts, it's a natural progression. Jesus ascended into heaven and now he said, now you go into all the world. And the book of Acts is a follow-on, if you like, of what it was of the church and the ministry Jesus built and the life that Jesus lived and he said I will build my church and now the acts is the acts of the apostles or better known acts of the Holy Spirit and I believe the book of acts is still being written today amen but then look at this why would Romans be first listen I wonder when you hold your Bible do you give consideration not only did God inspire the writing of it but God was a work and the collection the identification and the formulation of it Why would Romans be first? Because Romans is all about sin and salvation. That's why Romans would be first. And then first and second Corinthians. Dear God, the most immature, carnal church there was. It's dealing with infancy of maturity of believers. Why would the second Thessalonians be last? Because it's all about, if you read first and second Thessalonians, it's about end times. It was Paul's letters to the churches and then Timothy and then down to Philemon. And Philemon is put last because it's the shortest of all verses of Pauline letters written to individuals. Then Hebrews down the Job. These are all the non-Pauline letters. And then the book of Revelation that tells you and I that at the end of the day, God is coming back and Satan is defeated. Come on, somebody. Here's the second lie of TikTok theology. I want you to catch this one. Oh, listen to this. You can trust your Bible. Amen. But number two, the lie that's on marriage and sexuality. It's a lie today. What's going on in the world? 
And I want to start with the Bible verse to help us understand how we can trust God's word entirely. Listen to what Jesus said when we get confused. What do we say in today's world, in today's culture? Luke 12, when you were brought before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, in other words, culture, media, all the rest of it, don't worry how you'll defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what to say. You see, today, we are rebuked by a woke world. Our LGBT community, the corporate Bud Light crowd, the fairy princess at Disney with a moustache, the transgender wardrobe at Target. We need to remember this verse. Come on, somebody. We're up against authorities. Even church leaders are attempting to lead the church astray. They want to change the church's teaching on marriage. Even church leaders, some things don't change. Style, yes. Message, no. Method, yes. Come on, somebody. And listen, our church fathers taught us that marriage is between one man and one woman. This is a, a document. And it was beneficial for the beginning of children and for the good of offspring for both education and developmental purposes necessary for the perfection of community and to worship God. Listen to what, G, what the Apostle Paul said. Flee sexual immorality and every sin that does out, is outside the body. Sorry, every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So the Bible actually says we are to flee sexual immorality. So let me describe what that means. God forbids any form of sex outside God's original intent and design in Genesis 2. The Greek word immorality comes from a word which is pornea, which is where we get the word pornography. And Jesus even raises the bar. And Jesus, if you even look at a woman and think about having a relationship with her that's not your wife, you're as guilty as the one who did it. So let me tell you what it looks like in terms of what this means. It's pornography, it's sexual intimacy, cohabitation before marriage, oral sex outside of marriage, same sexual expression, polygamy, polymanimous, sexualizing yourself with deliberate, provocative dressing, adultery. Let me tell you what sexual immorality is. It's lust of the eyes and it's emotional fantasizing. So before I go any further, can I tell you, church, there's not a person in this room that hasn't done one of those things. All right, if I would ask for a show of hands this morning, how many can say on that list, you've done at least, I got my hand raised. You've done at least one of them. The rest are too scared to raise their hand. <laughs> Everybody's done this. Even if it's just lust of the eyes or emotional fantasizing, we are not good people trying to get bad people to be good. We're bad people who've been forgiven and we're trying to help others find forgiveness. Let me, let me give you something that happened in the 60s that was called the sexual revolution. I think it's done a lot of harm to culture and today and the world in which we live. So we live in a world in the 60s, they say, where the world is all about self-expression. But Jesus says we're about denying ourselves. Come on. We, in the sexual revolution, they're all about pride. Matter of fact, this is Gay Pride Month. But I love what the Bible says. We're about humility. 
The world says, sexual revolution says, we're born this way. Jesus said, you must be born again. The world, sexual revolution says, I'm good just the way I am. The Bible says, the world says that. The Word says, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. The world is all about coming out. But I believe coming out is a counterfeit for water baptism. Come on. The culture, the sexual revolution is all about tolerance. But the Word is all about repentance. Come on, somebody. Amen. And by the way, if you're just wondering what's going on with all this gender confusion and wardrobe and and attire and all those things, let me just say, I believe that even, and I I actually think the LGBTQ is a religion and every religion tries to get into children's ministry. Look at Target, look at Disney. Come on, somebody. See, the sexual revolution teaches some things. They teach you, number one, your sexual desires are your core identity. Amen? It's not just something you did. It's who you are. Your desire, they will teach you, is your core identity. And we all experience desires, don't we? And we all decide which ones we'll express and which ones we will control. And if you're not committed to the authority of Scripture, you will by default allow culture to become what things say that you should be. You become a slave to whatever sounds right if you're not committed to the authority of Scripture. Listen to what the Bible says. Yeah, don't clap. You'll take too much time. Okay? 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know what, listen, or do you not know what what wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or the, now listen to this, or the adulterers or the idolaters, nor men who have sex with men or thieves or greedy or the drunken or the slander or the swindler will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen to what Paul says. And that's what some of you were. So now remember the sexual revolution says, your identity is all wrapped up in your desires. But Paul's writing, no, no, you are not your desires. Some of you were that, but that's not your identity. This is not your identity anymore. There's some broken people I know that are in this church of which I am the most broken. And let me tell you this, this is not who you are. Only Jesus gets to give you your identity. Come on, somebody. You have a new identity. You are not your sexual desires. You are not your affair. You are not the divorce. You are not the mistake. Jesus gives you a new identity. Come on. Lie number two of the sexual revolution. Your fulfillment and human, and human flourishing is found, found rather on the other side of unrestricted sexual expression. I want you to hear it. Your fulfillment and human flourishing, sexual revolution life, is found on the other side of unrestricted sexual expression. Here's the thought. Get rid of the rules. Just throw them out. Amen? Uh, There's the word and there's the world. The world says, sorry, the word says, flee sexual immorality. Amen? But in Ephesians chapter 6, look at this. So the word tells us we're to flee sexual immorality. But look what Ephesians 6 is. Do we have it? We don't. I'll come over here. 
Okay, there it is. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after having done everything to stand, stand. Look at me. What does the Bible say? When you face the devil head on, you stand your ground. But when you are confronted with sexual morality, run, forest, run. <laughs> you, you face devil head on. I got you. Greater is he that's in me. But the Bible tells us where to run from sexual immorality. Come on, somebody give God some praise. <laughs> you see, I believe we end up hurting ourselves when we sin against our own body. Here's the thought. You ready for this? You are not your own. But the world says, my body, my choice. You didn't create you. You didn't redeem you. And you can't resurrect you. We are not our own. 1 Corinthians 7, do not deprive one another of sexual revolution, uh, re revolution revelation, relations. Unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves completely to prayer. And afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do you know what the Bible's saying? In the context of marriage, even a married couple shouldn't deny each other the pleasure of intimacy unless it's for prayer. And then after that, you agree to come back together again. One of the greatest destructions of married couples today is when somebody is withholding intimacy from their partner because it drives them to some unhealthy place. It says, don't deprive one another. The Bible isn't anti-sex. That's what I'm trying to say. The Bible is pro-sex and God wants it to be healthy and he wants it to be fun. But in the beginning of the sexual revolution, we now see a Gen Z generation who are angrier and more depressed and more lonely than they've ever been before. We actually see today in this decade for the first time in I don't know how long that there are more children who are being raised in fatherless families than families with a father. Let me tell you, that sexual revolution, look where it's got us. Lonely, depressed, angry, confused. Come on, somebody. And sexual abuse at its highest rate today than ever. And this idea that cohabitation is now the norm. This is how it's supposed to be. But if you do any research, any, any data, you'll discover that people who decide they're going to cohabitate before they get married are more likely divorced by 50% than any other married couple. And if you get married young and you stayed married, you have the longest and the healthiest and the happiest. Just look at the history. Look at the data. And religious people who are marrying young and remaining married are happier as long as they're married to the same person. Come on, I just want to encourage you. Stay married. Listen to what the apostle Paul said. Listen, actually, Matthew 19. For this reason, this is Jesus, this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, and they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And let me tell you, TikTok theology is trying to separate God's plan, God's intent, God's wisdom, and the culture in which we live in today. Amen. Marriage is a sacrament. It's a holy mystery between one man and one woman and by the grace of God to start a family. Amen? People say this. Well, we know more about humanity 
and homosexuality than when these scriptures were written. Well, to say that implies something pretty arrogant. What it implies is that God knew less than we know now. Come on, somebody. And by the way, the Anglican Church has a book of what's called Common Prayers. And it lists three reasons why you should get married. Number one, it says marriage was ordained for procreation of children and to be brought up into the fear and the nature of the Lord and to praise his holy name. Number two, it was ordained as a remedy against sin to avoid fornication as most people do not have the gift of celibacy, of which I do not have their gift, but to marry and to keep themselves undefiled as members of Christ's body. Number three, for the ordained for the mutual society, help and comfort that one ought to have the other, both in prosperity and in adversity. Even the Catholic Church says that the same thing. Marriage is God's plan. And 2,000 years of church culture and church doctrine should not be changed just because of a few liberal church leaders. What God has ordained cannot be adjusted to suit liberal views. Marriage is heterosexual and it's monogamous and should be open to the possibility of having children. Marriage is one man and one woman for the purpose of procreation. Sex outside of marriage is sin as it is the same for a heterosexual as it is a homosexual. So please don't think I'm bashing homosexuals. People say, what do you do with all the homosexuals that come the wave? I say, I let them sit in the same church as all the adulterers. They are all welcome. And fornicators. And liars. And drunkards. And swindlers. And thieves. We're trying to replace his authority with our own. Where does all this end? Where does it end up? I mean, why not polygamy then? I mean, if two men love each other, what's wrong with three? Where will that end? It's insane. I want to live. I want to know that the word of God can be trusted. And I understand TikTok theology is lying about marriage and sexuality. Jesus was inclusive of sinners. But it was him that changed them and led them away from sin. Not to embrace it and not to affirm it. The world has allowed and even recognized gay marriage. And that's the world's choice. Come on, somebody say amen. That world does that. But God sets conditions of how we all enter his heavenly kingdom. We are naturally counterculture. By the way, who's calling for Islam to accept gay marriage? Who's calling for the Quran to be updated to modern society laws? I get turned off by some church leaders because they make the Bible sound political rather than just let the Bible speak for itself. I can biblically agree with them, but I think they're mean, and I think they're not nice in their tone or even their approach. We can't change Jesus' words to suit our identity. I don't want people to think Jesus hates them. I certainly don't hate them. Amen. The church doesn't hate them. We love the sinner, and we hate the sin. My son Sam was preaching about this very subject in Texas and he got 200,000 views of somebody pushing back pretty hard saying, don't tell me that lie that we love the sinner and hate the sin. Well, the Bible tells us in, that we are in Hebrews 
chapter, what is it? Chapter one, verse eight, that we are to love righteousness and hate sin. The Bible tells me in Proverbs 6, there's six things the Lord hate, and seventh is an abomination to him. There are some things that we ought to hate because God hates it, and there's some things we ought to love because God loves it, and we need to hate sin. We hate sin. We do not hate the sinner. Amen. Somebody, come on, somebody. (laughs) My time is up. (laughs) Our real identity is only found in Jesus revealed by the Holy Spirit. Don't let the world define you. Don't let your desires define you. Don't let TikTok theology give you how you're supposed to see yourself. Amen? Come on, somebody say amen. Amen. We can't change Jesus' words to suit our identity. Amen? Our identity is found in Jesus and is revealed by the Holy Spirit. I just want to close by saying this. The media has turned the church into a hate group. And it's made it look like the church hates. And I want to tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. And there are some preachers, I go, look, man, you're just too mean. You're just too harsh. You're too, uh, I might even biblically agree with you, but your tone and your approach is just unkind. You're not helping us reach everyone. Can you say amen? Amen.